y'all. It's Jacqueline Coley. Can't get enough of the world of Downton Abbey? Good news. This is Downton Abbey, the official podcast. Wow. When I hear that music, it just takes me back because it means the drought is over. Downton Abbey, the official podcast, is a brand new weekly rewatch show, the place to be for all things related to Downton Abbey, the TV series, movie, and now, finally, the upcoming film, Downton Abbey, A New Era. I'm Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm going deep with your favorite Downton Abbey stars about their characters and how they came to be, going all the way back to the iconic moments of season one. Later in the series, my co-host, Anita Rani, will chat with more creators, stars, and members of the Downton Abbey crew about the new movie. But now, for our very first episode, we go all the way back to the beginning. In 2010, before all the acclaim and millions of viewers worldwide, Carnival Films and executive producers Gareth Neem, Liz Truebridge, and Nigel Marchant, and today's guest, Julian Fellows, all helped bring Downton Abbey to life. Julian has written the characters and storylines we've come to love. And when I spoke to him, I was gobsmacked by his talent and everything that came from his imagination. But I was even more surprised to realize how geeked he was about everything right alongside me. I had a complete fangirl moment. We laughed and joked all the way through the conversation. And I have to admit, it was probably one of the funniest interviews I've ever done. He had me cracking up at every turn. And I was just literally jumping up and down in my seat to be able to talk to this man who created these characters I think of as family. I also felt he was just as excited to speak to a super fan. And the time passed so quickly. And all of you just have to listen carefully for a quick cameo by Julian's wife. When we began chatting, he told us why he decided to set the series Downton Abbey when he did. Well, I wanted people to know when we were, when the whole thing was taking place. And you've got these very few, actually, iconic historical moments where almost everyone, even if they're not interested in history, they're not interested in any of it, most people will know that the Titanic went down just before the First World War. Mm. And they don't have to know the year, they don't have to know anything in detail, but this big ship set off on its maiden voyage and it went to the bottom taking many lives before the First World War, but not long before the First World War. And that was my way of telling them where we were beginning with the Crawleys. And also, of course, I was going to take two non-characters, uh, Robert's cousins, to the bottom of the Atlantic to start the story off. So all of that came together with the sinking of the Titanic. Well, it's such a great place to start. And you're right, by putting the cousins at the bottom of the ocean, it immediately casts exactly where we are. This is a high-ranking family. There's, there's surrounded by opulence, but the estate is in trouble. Like there's danger on the horizon. There's this interloper coming in. And so I really want to start with, you know, our first pair that we got to sort of have in this will they, won't they, you know, 
glances across the table type romance in Matthew and Mary and really talk about them as two characters because on their face, they absolutely should not in any way get together. She's, you know, haughty and pushed off and he's very much more open and a man of the people. And just the idea of them getting together seems almost nuts, but by the end of it, we, we figure it out. So yeah, talk about the early days of Matthew and Mary. Well, I think funny enough, it came, uh, the inspiration for that came from some of friends of mine, a real friend of mine, who was the heir to uh, a title and a state, but he hadn't grown up with all of that. He'd grown up outside Britain, he'd grown up in South Africa, and suddenly it became clear that um, actually his father was the heir because the, the holder had only had daughters. It's all the same story as Danton. Mm. And he was going to inherit. And the old boy in England said that he should come over and live on the estate so he would know what he was going to inherit. And that was all a true life story. But when I was hearing it, I thought, ooh, there's something here for me. (laughs) And um, because it was, I think, without naming any names, I think it was difficult for the eldest daughter that she was not the heir. She knew the law of the land, but she also emotionally didn't understand why she couldn't be the heir. And, of course, we would agree with her, I think, now. Yeah. The other thing was I wanted to have someone who was at the center of the family, so he couldn't be ignored uh, or marginalized, at the center of the family, but didn't think like them. that he'd grown up with different conditioning, he'd grown up with different beliefs. And effectively, although Matthew, of course, was part of a younger branch of a noble family, the fact is, if you are part of a younger branch of a noble family, you are not really living the life of the nobility, you're living the life of the upper middle class. Mm. And you have to get out there and get on with it. And his father had been a doctor or whatever, a surgeon, and his mother was the daughter of a doctor, and he himself was a lawyer. Now, of course, you know, he wasn't selling chestnuts in Covent Garden, but nevertheless, this was a real working life, and he had issues, and his parents had brought him up to accept real life as something you have to get on with. Whereas, to a great extent, when you are the master of a greater state, you are a little king. Mm. And, you know, the local people look up to you. Your house is the social center of the area. You probably own most of the village or all of it or several others. And so what you say goes. And when you're a normal human being, part of all our lives is striving for a kind of significance. We want to feel we have achieved something Mm. and that when we die, something's missing, you know, and not everyone manages that. But but most people, I think, aspire to it. But those people don't aspire to it. They're born with it. Mm. And they are significant, rather like being, you know, the child of Madonna. The moment you're born, the newspapers are interested in you. You don't have to fight for significance, it's there. And I wanted the contrast between the Crawleys of of Downton, who had been born to their 
roles and, you know, and they're not bad people, any of them. They're doing their best and they try to do their duty. And Robert Grantham particularly, you know, is trying to do what a landlord should. But nevertheless, they never have to fight for any kind of significance in life. They've got it. Mm. And I, I wanted someone who'd been completely differently conditioned to come into the middle of that and contrast his attitudes with theirs, which, you know, I hope we managed, really. It's the one thing that's so interesting about the show, and I, I don't think it was your design in writing it this way, but there's so many interlopers and outsiders that litter the sort of like huddle of Downton, whether they be folks with different sentiments, someone like, you know, the character of Rose who wants to get out of service or actual interlopers, like when you talk about Sybil and Branson and when you even talk about the, the marriage of Robert with Mrs. Crawley in that one. The fact that he chose to find an American bride. There's all of these folks from the outside looking in. I think it's one of the reasons why Americans resonate so much with it, even though in a lot of ways it's separate. I'm just curious because you obviously know how obsessed we are. You've hopefully seen the pictures. Why do you think, yeah, (laughs) why do you think it is such, has such an appeal to American audiences? Well, of course, I I can't really answer that because if (laughs) I could, I'd do nothing but write worldwide hits for the rest of my life. But, I mean, I think we have all been outsiders Mm. at some point in our lives, at school, at university, trying to get on in a career where they don't really want you. We've all done it. And that thing, that sort of mixture of wanting to belong but at the same time, resenting the people who won't let us belong Mm -hmm. uh, is something that I I think is part of uh, human existence. And so, you know, people say, oh, but these people are very different. You know, why are you popular in Montana? Well, the thing is, in Montana, there are people who want to get into the club and no one is letting them in. And that's what I'm writing about. Mm. It's like when you fall in love with someone who is completely out of your sort of range and and social expectation, which we have with Branson and Sybil. That was based on a friend of mine whose great aunt ran off with the groom, actually, not the chauffeur, but nevertheless, as the daughter of a peer, it was quite a big thing at the time. And she was telling me about it one dinner. I thought, oh, there's one for me. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's a moment when Branson says it's, you know, I forget the line now, but you don't make fun of me. This is it's killing me to say the things I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And because he knows that he's trying to leap over this enormous divide. And again, I think, you know, a lot of us spend in our life time trying to leap over an enormous divide. Either we're in love with someone who's not in love with us or indeed interested in us, or we're in a career. I mean, I went into acting when the whole scenario was that the northern working class actor, Albert Finney, Tom Courtney, Alan Bates, all these wonderful talents were very different to the actors of 1955. Mm. Now, I mean, I should have gone in in 1955, but the problem was I was only six. (laughs) So uh, 
I had to wait a while, but certainly the climate in the industry did not want people like me at that time. And, you know, you just have to kind of bang on or give up. And that's what I'm really exploring. And I think that's what people recognize and identify with. Uh, And the other thing, which I think is a fundamental philosophy of the show, is that, I mean, I had written a movie called Gosford Park before this, and, and I, it did well for me, you know, it was, it, it, everything was great. But when I was asked to go back into Gosford Park territory for television, I did recognize that Gosford was a little too dark mm. for people to want to come back every week. A lot of the people in Gosford were unhappy, unresolved, their lives were not doing well, they were trapped in a job they hated and so on. Now, you can watch that for an hour and 40 minutes, but you don't automatically say, oh, it's Sunday, I've got more depression coming up. And, and so I did have a sense that I needed it to be a warmer place. And I feel, I mean, this sounds rather jejeune, but nevertheless, it has been my experience in life that most people are doing their best. Mm. And, uh, you know, I may disagree with them politically or philosophically or, you know, whatever, but it doesn't alter that fact that most men and women that I have ever known have been trying their best. And that, I think, is what the show had. Yeah. And actually, it's so interesting that you put it that way, because that is the commonality of everyone under the house, whether it be upstairs or downstairs. There's even in the most nefarious actions of the folks that are doing things. I think even with someone like O'Brien, which is a hard character. (laughs) Even with O'Brien. O'Brien had a brother who was sent back to the front with shell shock and he was killed. Yeah. And it made her very bitter about people in authority. And once I think, you know, it's rather like Thomas, the footman. I mean, he was quite, at the beginning, non-simpatico because I wanted people to relax. They weren't being expected to be on the side of this rather bitter, angry guy. Mm-hmm. But gradually, as you tell the story, you start to understand what it was like being gay in 1912 or 1920, when one drunken moment, one ill-advised pass, which for a heterosexual would, might mean a slap, but that's the absolute outside of what they're going to get. Whereas for him, it could mean prison. And What is it like to live your life when you're not a criminal person, you're not a bad person, what you want is to live your life within the rules of society, but the rules of society make your emotions illegal. I have this quote where you talk about secrets and just how secrets were different at that time. But you said, uh, we all tell, but there are still elements that we feel that undermine the presentation of a person we are trying to be that we don't tell. And that's where we're vulnerable. Those are our Achilles heels. And I just think it's so interesting when you look at the people of that time, because 
Not everybody knows that Mrs. Hughes had a suitor. Not everybody knows about what happened to Anna. And these are the secrets that they just sort of keep in this time period, probably to their deathbed and maybe, maybe never tell it. Talk about the difference between now and then for secrets, I guess. It's partly now and then. I mean, of course, we still have our secrets. And we're the generation that sort of likes to hang it all out and have badges saying they were they had horrible childhoods and everyone beat them up and then this and this and this and this. But even with that, we hold stuff back. We hold stuff back that we think diminishes us. There's an interesting thing, too, about the then and the now is the politics and scandal. <laughs> like, like that is something, it's, it must be like death and taxes. Politics and scandal is, is also something that is universal. Reputation, how much in season one is dangled by Mary's dalliance with Mr. Pamuk. You know what I mean? Like- Well, everything was at risk, you see. I think that you, you weren't allowed much in- society, particularly. But even, it's wrong to say that, actually, because even, you know, all down the class system and everything else, I mean, an illegitimate birth was an absolute write-off. And that was true of all classes. That wasn't just one or the other. And those things, so that you, in that generation, you got a lot of the thing of the baby being adopted by the parents of the mother, and they would mm. say it was a menopausal child, and they would be brought up so that their mother was their sister. Yeah. And that was very common. And, you, you know, sometimes people were told, sometimes no one was told, because mm. unlike us, on the whole, they kept their secrets. But, you know, all of those behavioral things, I mean, when Mary pulls her mother in, and, and, you know, and says Mr. Pamuk is dead and everything else. I mean, I got, that was a real story that in an English country house, there had been a house party. It was a little earlier. It was in about 1890. And this house was unusual in that it had one gallery of bedrooms only for single women. I mean, a lot of houses had bachelor corridors, but, but this was only for single women. And they were widows and young girls and so, so on. Uh, spinsters, whatever. And one day, uh, one of them was sleeping. With this, she'd had the flirtation with a man in the house party, and he was in her bed, and he died. And he had a heart attack. She didn't know what to do. And this was all in the diary of the great, great aunt of the owner of the house. He found the diary. And wow. finally, she sat there for a bit with this dead body. And finally, she got up and knocked on the door of the woman next door. She said, I don't know how to tell you that. And this woman, who was a sort of blameless matron, she knew that if this story got out, they would all be tarred by it. And it would be all around London by Monday. And so they woke the women up along the corridor to carry this dead body through one of England's great houses to get him back into his real bed. And this group of women, led by a sort of debutante holding a candle, smuggled this guy back into his bed. And the next day he was found by his valet. And my friend who owned the house looked up his 
great-great-grandfather's diary. And it said, very sad, this morning, Mr. Turton was discovered dead in his bed by his valet. We are all so sorry. He was never told. And that he never got out. And, you know, that sort of thing is, when I was being told that, again, you know, you're always, like a writer is like a squirrel. You know, you're always shoving these nuts into your pouch. And, and as I was told that, I thought, and so there we have Cora and, and Anna the maid and M Michelle dragging this body down the uh, passage. But I mean, Cora's response, I think was totally authentic, mm. that her first duty was to rescue her daughter from ruin. And once she'd achieved that, she could be as cross as she liked in <laughs> private. But yeah. the first thing she had to do was rescue her from ruin. And, and, and I think that was authentic. Well, I know it was. Rescue her and, you know, perceivably the other girls as well. The other girls, the, the house. Yeah, the house. Do you want Downton to be a house of scandal? Yeah. No. You know, that sort of thing was going on at all levels of society. This business of maintaining face, putting a good face on, I, I think all the different communities that made up uh, late 19th century Britain and early 20th century, they would all have had the same response. Nobody said, my daughter's living a life, what can I tell you? You know, that just wasn't a contemporary response. Yeah, speaking of contemporary too, because it, what's interesting about the series and another reason why I think it resonates globally, again, not just in the UK, around the globe, people have come to love these characters and these stories is because even though it's so set in the past, like it, there's no denying its authenticity and where it's framed and the mindset of the people at the time, but it feels also still forward thinking. I'm just curious how much of current socio-political drama type stuff do you think about when crafting these characters? Or do you really try to just leave that there and stay within the time period that you're writing? Well, I mean, that's a good question, but I, I think there are certain fundamental decencies that on the whole run through every period. And I think people wanted to be a good mother in the 15th century. We didn't invent all this stuff. Mm. Uh, and so where I feel there is a genuine kind of, oh, ooh, I'm just getting a cup of coffee from my wife. Oh, hi, hello to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that you can assume some sort of commonality with various mm values. And I think to keep the drama believable, you must allow the characters to accept what were the norms of their own time. But within that, I think you can have a certain amount of fun. And, uh, you know, I mean, like Edith wanting to be a publisher. I mean, for me, Edith is a classic example of a lot of women, but who, if the First World War had never happened, they probably would have gone on and married the man their father approved of, and they would help in the local school, and they would run their husband's estate, and you know. Mm -hmm. But the war made demands of them. 
the war put them in charge of things. And this was, again, right through society. The war put them into factories, put them into manufacturing, put them into onto farms and put them with the land yes. girls, you know, who began in the First World War yes. and all of that stuff. And of course, at the end of the war, the government basically wanted them to put away their overalls and go back to the kitchen. But in both cases, they came through the 20s in one, the 50s in the other. But by the end of those decades, they were living in a different world. And the role of women had been changed by both wars. And that, for me, gave me Edith's curve, that because she had worked on the land, driven the tractors, done all the stuff she'd done, that these women did, that my great aunts did. And because she had a boyfriend who brought her into publishing and gave her the opportunity, she wasn't really prepared to go back mm. to nothing, just to do it. Even, even when she's running Brancaster, which, you know, is a big job, even that's not enough. She's got to have some people who were interested in what she's thinking. Well, it's interesting you mentioned it with Edith, but you see that also too with Lady Sybil. Her time working as a nurse in, a, in the war definitely gave her likely the courage to run off with Branson. When you've seen that kind of horrors, you're going to want to grab any happiness you can find with both hands. Yes, I mean, I think just to talk about Sybil for a moment, Sybil is a genuine rebel. Not many people are genuine rebels. She doesn't care that she is giving up her life, the life she was born for. She wants to do something different with her life. She doesn't want to marry the man her grandmother would approve of. She wants to marry someone different. But there's a real difference between that and Mary and Edith. Mary and Edith want to do things their own way. And Mary has come effectively by the end to run the estates and so on and so forth. And Edith has her own life. They want to do things their own way, but they don't want to be outsiders. Mm. They, they don't want to be untouchable. Sybil is different. She is prepared. And when she says, you know, to her father, you tell me I'll never be received at court. When will you understand that I don't care? Mm -hmm. And and that, for me, was what I wanted to show. I mean, I, I have three brothers, so I do know a little about sibling rivalry and, and the sibling relationship. Uh, and it's always rather annoyed me that in television and films, usually sisters and brothers are incredibly devoted to each other and absolutely adore each other. And every time they see each other, they Ugh. But that wasn't my experience. And, and the mixture of knowing someone incredibly well, because you have been conditioned together from the year one, but at the same time, ha having rivalries, having disagreements, being very different politically, very different philosophically, whatever it is, you know, that I, I wanted to get into this because I think our sisters, I mean, I'll say this, it sounds a bit braggy, really, but I think our sisters were much more like real sisters than they often are in films. And, Absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> but they have these moments, I mean, when Sybil dies or, or whatever it is, these moments of closeness, 
Uh, and I think that's true too. You know, I think uh, it, you do have those moments of closeness, but they're not the whole story by any means. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Definitely what not. Show really. When Edith yelled at Mary for ruining her relationship with Bertie, like that fight was like six seasons coming, and I loved every second of it. I was like, "He's bringing out the B word." Yes, Mary, take it to her. She needed it. She's had two husbands at this point. Right. <laughs> also, Mary's one. malice. I mean, Mary's malice at that breakfast yeah. when she deconstructs Edith's relationship. I mean, she had it coming. <laughs> she so had it coming. I love, and I was literally like. That that moment, I was like, yes, because Edith was no prize in the first couple of seasons. Let's be honest. She was very much conniving. But by that point, I was I was very much team Edith. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is messed up. Well, that wonderful thing in Saturday Night Live. Do you remember when they said yes. it's about three sisters, hot, super hot and the other one? That's so messed up, too, because the, what is so crazy is just looking at Laura and just how gorgeous she is. And I'm just like, y'all pulled a magic trick on that one. But she, she was one, she had such a viewing figure. She had so many fans. People got really involved. And when she was jilted yes. at the, the altar and threw her veil, do you remember, the, over the yes. staircase? I mean, I, I, the letters, the tears, <laughs> for them, I mean, it was extraordinary. Oh. It's so great talking to you, which I knew how funny you were based on interviews and obviously, but you forget how funny the show is sometimes when we're talking about all of these like big sweeping moments and, and the politics and the, the authenticity. But the thing I always tell people when they're asking about the show, I was like, well, they've got the best one-liner joke machine ever. And she's also a dame in Maggie Smith playing the Dowager Countess. She's my favorite character to listen to. I just... Because she, as her butler says, she never wants to be predictable. Like anytime you think that she's going to react one way, she reacts a different way. And she's done it since the first season, since the first time she came out there. One of the great joys of writing for Maggie, which I've now done quite a lot, really. because mm -hmm. um, We've had 10 years of Danton with the films. And it, what I love about her is it doesn't bother her if in this particular story, her role is unsympathetic. Mm. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't worry her at all. As long as the story hangs together uh, and it's clear why she is behaving as she is behaving, whether she's sympathetic or not, it's meaningless. <laughs> and, and Michelle had that as well, mm. which made them great to write for because you could give them very unsympathetic story, but then you give them a sympathetic one. Yeah. And then you can take them through the same person is in a different situation. And I mean, that for me, again, is lifelike. I mean, I can think of times in my life where I behave very badly. And I can think of other times when I think I behave quite well. Yeah. And, you know, most people are like that, I would guess. Yeah, I definitely want to ask about sort of the fact that season one seems to be either you just had this mapped out or you were just very lucky because there's so much foreshadowing in season one for things that are yet to come. Is there anything that happened in season six that you knew when you were writing season one you wanted to get to and how you wanted to get there? No. <laughs> no. I, I thought we would be very lucky to get three seasons. 
I knew what they were because at the time we'd chosen, we had before the war, essentially what was left of Edwardian England. We had the war when everything changed and everything was put under, you know, with stress and everything. We had the 20s. These were all three very distinct periods and they were distinct for this kind of people and this kind of life. And that was all I anticipated. As for things like Carson and Mrs. Hughes, I wanted them to be uh, intimate and friendly because that was the, the, the duo that ran those houses, the housekeeper and the butler. And if they got on, then that was great if they could work together. And sometimes when they didn't get on, you know, it was quite a bumpy ride for everyone. And the cook, the chef, whatever, was always a slight kingdom of her own. She would have her kitchen maids and she wouldn't really be under orders from either the butler or the housekeeper. She was her own person. The only person she would take orders from was essentially the mistress of the house. And so you've got these different power bubbles within the house. But after we started, I mean, the only time when you're writing a series, it's the only time when you are writing for performances you've already seen. Mm. Normally, when you write a movie, you write a musical, whatever it is, you write it, someone casts it, there's the show. But a series, by the time I got, we'd got to sort of filming uh, episode five, I was writing for actors I knew we'd cast. Mm. And gradually you start to write for their strengths and you think, oh, this woman is really funny. This man is very touching, whatever. And you start to create stories which will show them at their best and will make the audience cry or will make the audience laugh. And the more I did that, the more I felt there was this kind of I mean, it seems odd to use the word chemistry because that's normally with romantic duos, but there was a kind of chemistry between Carson and Mrs. Hughes that was obvious. And when they went to the seaside and held hands when they were paddling was when I officially began their love story. I mean, that's what we did too. Like, (laughs) (laughs) So well on you. That was when we were like, it's happening. Because I think there was a bit of a fan campaign before that. But like that one was where we were like, we've got him. (laughs) This is maybe like fighting over your children. But is there a particular storyline or arc that you sort of cherish maybe above the others? Well, to be honest, I think I was pretty well served with this cast. I mean, I think they picked up every story and ran with it. I, I, <laughs> I didn't feel anything had been under-delivered. And so, uh, you know, I had lots and lots of favor. I was very moved, which sounds odd, really, by Sybil's death. I mean, I'd researched it and I knew it was coming because Jessica only said right at the beginning, she couldn't do three years and that was it. So I knew it was coming. But watching it, I, you know, I, I found it, and the things they added, I remember Alan Leach was terribly touching in that. And I asked him afterwards, I said, God, where did that come from? And it was a real death he'd been at. He started to remember this death he'd been at. Mm. And um, anyway, and there I was crying away. And I thought, you wrote it. What did you think would happen? But 
I mean, that actually makes me feel better because, and this is maybe telling too much, but whenever I need a good cry, there's certain shows that can do it. And there is not, I'm not dead inside so long as I can pull up the Sybil, like when Alan reaches and says, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. Like, and he's holding out to her hand. Like that is probably one of the, just get the tears going so we can have a, a moment <laughs> and then you meditate and, and then you move on. Uh, <laughs> There's uh, a wonderful moment in that story too, where Maggie came in and I forget what she said, but she said something to Carson and she touched his hand, which was the only time in six years she touched him. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and then she walked across the hall and just before she went into the drawing room she pulled herself together and stood up yeah you know that's what you get them for What you may not have heard, but I could see because we were on a Zoom, was that Julian, as he was describing those moments, he actually broke up. And it was amazing to me that after all of this time, literally living with these characters he's written, and let's face it, giving interviews about them over and over again, he's still so moved by what happens to them, like I am. Just like you, if you're listening to this, probably are as well. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app. Or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, everyone. So today, to end the first episode of the Downton Abbey, the official podcast, we are joined by Anita Rani. She's the host of the episode you will hear later in the series. And like me, she is a Downton super fan. Anita, can you tell us a little bit about what we're going to have in store for your part of the series? Oh, my goodness me. Well... Downton superfans, you may already know, I'm sure you do, because you'll probably have seen the trailer. There's a movie coming out. There's a new movie. Downton Abbey, A New Era. So I have done a six-part series where we really dive into what the movie has in store. We talk to some of the lead actors. I talk to the director, um, Simon Curtis, Julian Fellows, the writer, Liz one of the producers, Dominic West. Am I giving enough away? Who's going to be in the new movie? So that's what we're about. And also, you know, looking over what the past characters have been through. So I am. Yes, you are going to love it. Being the super fan that you are. I feel (laughs) I wish I'd put a corset on for you. (laughs) 
It's so weird how many Americans like myself who are like, you know, I was born on a secondary dirt road and I didn't know anything about lords and ladies, but I'm obsessed with just this idea because it's so foreign. It's almost fantasy. Mm. And I remember just watching like even the first episode thinking like, oh, I'm I'm dipping into this world and I'm dipping into it in a way that's going to make me never want to leave it. Um, and I felt it almost like from the first episode. But like, what about you? When did you, were you like the first episode when it was like live on oh. air over there? Or when did you get hooked? So I know I was a little bit later to the party. A friend of mine whose taste I trust said, you have to watch this. And it kind of hit every Bollywood note for me. It's like, okay, this has got everything in it. It's got all the characters. The script is brilliant. But I particularly, I tell you, the moment I knew I was going to love this is when a man dies whilst trying to have sex with Lady Mary. (laughs) I'm like, this is the series for me. Yeah. The hot Turkish man has just <laughs> died and now they are trying to dispose of the body in a stately yeah. home. I don't know what's going to happen in the next episode, but I'm hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, that was definitely the episode, I think, for a lot of people, the Pamuk episode, because it did like take the series in such an interesting turn and stuff that honestly we were paying dividends of in the last movie. Like they're still like using yeah. Mr. Pramuk and like the after ripple effects. But for me, it was actually the cheerful Charlie's. When I found out that Carson, and I think this is in like episode two, the very stately yeah. butler who, you know, is everything else. When he has his past come and invade him and gets frazzled into his existence. And then the like back and forth between Bates and Anna, where they're like, we're going to think of him differently because he's singing and dancing on the stage. It was like a really great moment because in that it was everything. It was the class and structure and what's right and what isn't. And then there's the fact that this is really a workplace drama with like, you know, I'm looking at Jim and Pam now. That's when like the series had a bow for me because it was more than just the crazy or the scandalous or the whatever. It was the fact that then they're all going to like gossip about it afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And every character has so much heart. There's so many layers to the characters. We get to know them so well because I think people can dismiss it as sort of, you know, easy watching. Actually, there is so much to Downton and the, the writing is so clever and how they manage to get the storylines and you know actually you know it's not even the script sometimes just the looks that they give mm-hmm. each other give so much away do you have a favorite character or a few favorite characters i know that's like the hardest question for a super that fan is the hardest question so like what's what's so interesting is i have the biggest like tender part of my heart for mosley i yes. love him i just i love mosley i i cringed all the way to my like teenage years when he like spoke to the king in the last episode and I love how they've trained us as an audience as of Americans to know just how out of bounds what he did was I mean (laughs) I loved it I I love that you said mostly because he is same as you one of my favorite characters just because we see him develop and actually having spoken to both of them uh, including Julian Fellows about it and Julian you know I don't think he was meant to be in it for as long as he's been in it it's because the actor took the role and just gave him so much depth and so it made him so interesting that Mm -hmm. and i know what happens to him in the movie and i i can't reveal it but i you are gonna love it so much his storyline is amazing 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 
I love it. I'm very jealous, especially that you got to talk to Dominic West. Like, girl, let's talk about it. He's about to play uh, Prince Charles in The Crown, which I am anxiously also <laughs> waiting for as well. But he, he did the voice when I was talking to him as well. Oh, he did? He of did course he did. Of course he did. <laughs> I'll ask you this. Alan oh. Leach said, in America, people will run across a busy highway dodging traffic to tell you they love you, love your show. And in the UK, people will run across a busy highway in traffic just to tell you they don't watch it. And that's <laughs> a quote. That's a quote that he's paraphrasing from Robert Collier and we are miserable (laughs) over here but wait and then Michelle said when she went to New York it was just she said it was mate this is bonkers like when she was talking about it how big it is in comparison to over here have you really clocked the difference in like how did you get to even experience a little bit of how crazy Americans are over here about it so as a British person who has been to America a few times, it is just the the fascination with the royal family is, and just, I guess, the class system that we have here, because we have an aristocracy mm-hmm. and the history. So you can understand why Downton is so popular. Yeah. It's so, so popular over there. And I love what Alan Leach said to you. He's so brilliant. And his character is amazing because, yes. you know, I, and again, he is somebody within Downton who has straddled the social strata. He's gone mm-hmm. from being from one class and then ends up where he is right up there within within the social structure, which I don't know whether that would really how that would go down in real life. We could literally talk about this for hours, but I did want to ask you this. And it's something that I asked, I think, almost everyone on the show, which is that world. Like I say, it is it is almost fantasy for us in so many ways. And so you you look at it with longing the way you look at it when you look at like, you know, a unicorn. It's like, oh, I want to touch that. But what is the thing from the Downton world that you'd be like, oh, I just want to touch that? What's the thing that you wish we could kind of bring over? Well, interestingly, for me, the most interesting characters, for me, Daisy is one of my favorite characters. And what stands out for me, and I think who are the sort of the the people who have the most interesting storylines and probably the most interesting lives because they had social mobility as women and something to look forward to and something to strive for. I often, obviously, the ladies who live above stairs, the ladies, they get to wear the divine costumes and I i mean, I drool at those costumes and dream of wearing those dresses. However, I think it would be really boring as a woman back then to be a lady because mm. what do you do? You sit around and think about potential husbands. <laughs> so I am with, like, I love it. I love it for so many reasons, but for, I watch with particular interest with what's happening below stairs, particularly for the women. I love that. Anita, this was so great chatting with you. I'm so excited for everyone to hear all of the conversations that you and I had for folks listening. Anita will be back as we lead into episode six. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it was so much fun. I loved chatting to you, Jacqueline. I can't wait to do it again. That was the amazing Anita Rani. She's going to be hosting six episodes later in the series focused on the upcoming film Downton Abbey, A New Era. But join us next time for my conversation with Lady Mary herself, Michelle Dockery, who takes us behind the scenes of the shocking storyline of Mr. Pamuk. It's Cora's reaction, it's Elizabeth when she goes, oh! <laughs> her reaction when his head flops back. Because it's just, you know, that if there was any 
uncertainty if he's dead or alive. Like that was another moment of it. No, he's definitely gone. You know, his head just sort of lolling backwards. Michelle Dockery, next time on Downton Abbey, the official podcast. Downton Abbey, the official podcast is a production of Focus Features, Limina House and Gobsmack Studios, executive producer, Diantha Parker. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And finally, don't miss the film Downton Abbey, A New Era, the much-anticipated cinematic return of the global phenomenon that reunites the beloved cast as they go on a grand journey to the south of France to uncover the mystery of the Dowager Countess's newly inherited villa. Downton Abbey, A New Era, only in theaters this spring. Before we end today, I want to leave you with this from Julian Fellows on what part of the Downton Abbey world he'd like to see today. I'm Jacqueline Coley, and we'll see y'all next time. I like their politeness, and I like their sense of order. I think that those things relax you. Far from making you feel that formality spoils things, it actually, for me, relaxes me. I mean, I you know, when I see the phrase... Um, uh, ca- you know, what was it, smart casual? I don't know what smart casual is. I want someone to say suits, black tie, informal. You know, one of those three, and then I know what to wear. And, and I think their world was easier for that. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader